Hello, Heal community. For the first time in nearly a year, I'm opening my practice back up to the general public. I'm actively looking for 10 new qualified clients committed to reversing their illness or health concerns and powerfully taking on their journey to heal. If you're interested in finding out more, go to my website and schedule a free 25-minute phone call. We will discuss what you're dealing with and be sure we are the best fit for each other. Remember, I specifically have expertise in autoimmunity, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, mold illnesses, hormones, and insomnia, but can treat much more. Looking forward to connecting with you. Welcome to Heal. On today's episode, financial trader Sam Krishna dares us to face the unpopular conversation of tail risk, the highly improbable, devastating events that we like to think will never happen, but do all the time. What can we do to mitigate our own potential negative tail risk and forensically investigate how to cause the miraculous positive outcomes possible at the right side of the bell curve? I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Marshall. Well, shall we? Let's Try do this. Bite off more than we can chew. See what we're, happens. We're going to be biting off more than we can chew. Yes. That's, that's <laughs> what I was hoping for in this conversation. So, yeah. welcome, Sam Krishna, to heal. Thank you so much for being willing to do this. Yeah, it's great. It is great. <laughs> You're like, oh man, here we go. <laughs> So, you know, I, 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 before you, before you yeah. go too into the weeds, I'm so used to listening to you and your guests at one and a half speed. And now like I'm doing this normal speed. It's like, this is so different. It is. <laughs> Throw yeah. in a little bit of emotion and then you're like, oh my gosh, time warp. Yep. Yeah, totally. Good, 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 good. Well, I want to say a couple things about who you are and who you okay. are for me, as you say, uh, computational trader, inevitable hedge fund manager, cultivator of the unknown, explorer, dreamer, thinker, runner, CrossFit, future fitness model, question mark? Or are we sure about that? Yeah, that's a game I'm playing. Awesome. Yeah. Mythic, mystic theologian. That, yeah, uh, exclamation point on all of those. You were one of, I'm going to say a bunch of things and then you can just be like, oh man, but you are one of the most... <laughs> extraordinary brilliant people I ever have the privilege to get into conversations with and for well over a year and a half since the pandemic started you know we've been friends for eight years and something we shifted into gear in our friendship from our biannual to semi-annual uh, conversation every eight months to being in pretty regular communication over the last year and a half and yeah. like there's not a lot of humans that I can find myself in a three hour long conversation and be just as excited and stimulated all the way through to the end. And so I didn't know what I just knew at some point this day would come and you would be on the podcast. Wow. Okay. I mean, I, I hope we can give the audience a little taste of it. Yeah. We'll see. Good. So. Good. And so, you know, I asked you, what do you think we should talk about? And you said tail risk. And I said, I, what the F is that? Yeah, I did say that. And you did say that. And I actually wrote some, I actually wrote something down to answer the question. Awesome. I think we should start there. Yeah. So tail risk, what is it? In, in standard statistics, it's 
any event that happens less than roughly 0.3% of the time for the, I don't know how many math nerds you have in your audience, but we'll go ahead and be ultra precise here just so that people could look it up. It's basically an event that happens beyond the three sigma event horizon on the left-hand side of the, of a normal distribution. Okay. So that's a whole bunch of gobbledygook. Great, what does that yes. mean? Uh-huh. So if you look at what the, how the modern world is constructed, insurance, financial markets, your favorite, you know, medical practice, both naturopathic and, and both Western and Eastern medicine, you know, trans, e-commerce transactions, shipping, everything. Just, just think about every way that the modern world occurs. All of that has been constructed by statistical models. Okay. And the normal distribution Basically, when a company signs up to provide a service, they're essentially guaranteeing a normal distribution where roughly, yeah, you know, for a lot of companies to be profitable, especially in this day and age, they try to guarantee between, let's see, 97 to 99.7% reliability of service. Okay. That's two sigma. Well, two sigma is 96%, three sigma is 99.7%. And Tail risk happens on the 0.3% on or on the back end where that's where failure occurs. And so when you go to return something at the store, when you return something in Amazon because you know it didn't get delivered in time or it didn't, or you just got the wrong thing, that is that's them guaranteeing that they would say, okay, we will make it this right by handling this, you know. And whenever you have a catastrophe where you basically have a whole bunch of systemic failure, i.e., like, let's say, I don't know, what would be a good example? Shoes, women's shoes. Everybody, you know, women loves women's shoes. Men, Men I think, love women's shoes. shoes. Men's love women's shoes. Mostly on women, but not always. Uh, Yeah, we're not going that far into this. but, (laughs) (laughs) but, But let's say that there's some kind of like warehouse fire, right? That happens at an Amazon distribution center. And this completely back jams up, you know, distribution to Los Angeles or upstate New York or New York City. That is considered a tail risk event that Amazon, you know, has to make good on. You know, they've got to, you know, their insurance, you know, providers have to pay out and a whole bunch of things have to happen to make that interruption of service right. Okay. Otherwise, a whole bunch of angry ladies are going to be all like, nah, brah, I want my money back. What happened to my (laughs) shoes? What happened to my shoes, yo? (laughs) So that, so that is a tail risk event. And uh, yeah, basically in my line of work in financial markets, um, you know, to experience a tail risk event, it's actually in the standard statistical model, what that normally looks like is that you know, a, a normal trading day in the U.S. equities market is roughly, or sorry, a normal trading year in the U.S. equities market, think Wall Street, is roughly 250 trading days. And, you know, so a tail risk event um, like this or black swan, yes, that is a call out to Nicholas Nassim Taleb. The basically like it, 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 the standard statistical model implies that that should only happen roughly once every four, one day out of every 14 years or roughly one day out of 3,500 trading days. So super rare, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now the conventional wisdom, if you're, if you approach this from a a standard statistical models that these types of things tend to never happen, 
but it turns out that they actually happen all the time. <laughs> Therein so, lies the rub and why we're having this conversation. Yeah, yeah. It, it actually turns out that these happen all the time. So we're going to start with a president who was, we're going to start the story with a president who was actually under threat of impeachment a long time ago in a town not too far away from you. So it's August of 1998. Bill Clinton is being dragged, you know, by the Republicans, you know, for basically misconjugating the definition of is. And at the same time, during one of the hearings, this, uh, hedge fund that was really extremely well-known called Long-Term Capital Management, which had not one, but two Nobel Prize winners in its employ to advise them on this very thing about, yeah, these models work all the time and they're only going to fail once every billion years. Like that's literally how they thought about it. They basically lost their shirt during, during the epic market failure of August of 98. They were taken out by a global market crash that was supposed to mathematically happen only one day out of every 100,000 years. Wow. Or one, one out of 20 billion was the probability for that market crash. But then yeah. it actually happened. But it actually happened, yeah. And then, in, and again, you know, it's like, well, that should have only, that was like an act of God, bad thing, doesn't happen, you know, rarely happens. Wrong answer. The prior year in 90s, the Dow Jones Industrial Average had fallen 7.7% in a single day. The odds of that happening are roughly one out of 50 billion with a capital B. Now, three years later, you know, three years later after this market crash, we have another market crash, but what happened before it, three years, you know, what happened before it, the day before this particular market crash was uh, a day that I think everybody who uh, listens to your podcast probably remembers, September 11th, right? that was a tail risk failure in national security, right? Yeah. And yeah, so it's not just for financial markets. It, it actually happened for the national security state. This also happened again with a single individual that most people have some exposure to their products. Uh, 25 months later in October of 2003, Steve Jobs was diagnosed with, let's see, I hope I pronounced this right. I trust your doctor skills will save this if it, if it goes down wrong. Let's see. Neuroendocrine islet tumor, you know, for pancreatic cancer. He got the diagnosis in October of 2003, and he promptly refused surgery that was advocated by his doctors. He didn't want to be opened up, and he really believed that he, if he just willed it, it would go away. He did finally submit to the surgery nine months later and then died 10 years ago next month in October of 2011. Now, let's see, 19 months ago, another tail risk event happened. The first reported case of COVID-19 had its first human infection in Wuhan, China in December of 2019. We are in the middle of a once every 100 year pandemic right now because of tail risk. And, and yeah, this is the reality. Tail risk happens all the time, but yet we act like it doesn't. You know. I was just, you know, as I was doing a little bit more research, it turns out that like, and then like tail risk shows up more or less depending upon the demographic group and where you happen to live. So like one of your previous guests, Dr. Maisha Claiborne, she referenced Dr. Susan Moore at the Indiana University Hospital. You know, she didn't get 
treatment, you know, she actually posted a viral video on Facebook about how, you know, systemic racism, uh, systemic white supremacy in hospital care prevented her from getting timely respiratory support for her COVID-19 infection. She did eventually subsequently die. This isn't just for COVID, right? You know, African-American women who are pregnant have roughly, are at risk of three to X more likely to die of complications from pregnancy mortality than their white counterparts. And yet, there is another kind of tail risk emerging in the non-Hispanic white population as well. Tressie McMillan Cottom and her colleagues have been researching this phenomenon. Um, actually, and they published a paper just before the pandemic started, where non-Hispanic whites are starting to see an increase in deaths from despair because they are experiencing a false perception that they are losing their social status at the top of the American uh, food chain. You know, this is another example of that's risk documented in- that that's happening. Yeah, there's there's a whole paper. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It came wow. out four months before lockdown. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, tail risk happens everywhere in health outcomes, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, that, that's a loaded minefield of tail risk, of all yeah. the things that that's super rare outcome that almost never happens, except then I, like, then I, I have it in my patient population where I have yeah. a client and her husband both have had a, that never happens outcome with the same cataract surgery. And it's like two in one family that never happens. Like, I mean, there's just, yeah. Yeah. So that's the thing. I mean, and, and, you know, I, if any audience member here has, you know, an acquaintance or a family member that, you know, is vaccine hesitant, just remember somebody as smart as Steve Jobs was surgery hesitant. And then it, you know, it wound up taking him out. So it's not a function of being stupid or ignorant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's about, it's about an unwillingness to see something, you know, it, or it, an unwillingness or an inability to see something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's, uh, so yeah, that's a tour of tail risk in, in uh, three to four or five minutes. Well, that's just the biggest, loveliest bowl of cherries we've ever talked about on <laughs> <meal> before. <laughs> and so like, I mean, this was, the inquiry for, for both of us is like, okay, why would we have this conversation? What is the potential advantage or significance or importance of highlighting this? Because at one level, it's like, I mean, I'm a pretty positive outlook, mentally faced forward individual. Sure. And believe that that actually makes a difference in my life. And so, I mean, I, I have come somewhat begrudgingly to later in life to even succumb to having regular health insurance and carrying certain kinds of insurance because part of me is just like, come on, like, really, am I going to put all this money and financial effort into, quote, something that's probably never going to happen, though, I don't know if this actually falls into tail risk from a statistical level, and you can correct me on that, but like me being a healthcare practitioner with a pretty impeccable track record of taking care of my body and my health inside of alternative medicine and natural medicine and integrative medicine, seeing a regular naturopathic physician monthly for 15 years and last summer, I crash and burn into a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome 
And part of what hit me about that was my 30 year old self, which I'm not anymore was like disability insurance. Are you kidding me? I'll never need that. Like that idea that all of a sudden there was a real possibility I could not work. And it was such a wake up call for me to realize how I was not organized at all in my business for even having to take three months off in order to take care of something. I mean, it could have been a torn MCL. It doesn't even have to be that complicated. And I sure. not designed my business, my practice. I was not set up financially yeah. directly. I have amazing community around me and a support system, but that was one of the things that came up for me last summer is like, I have to keep running my practice and I only have five viable hours of functionality a day. How do I do that? Now I did work that piece out, but would that count as tail risk? Yeah, I mean, you getting CFS, especially when you didn't have any kind of, and again, this is speculative, right? right. I, I, it's, it's, it, this isn't a conversation for accuracy. It's more of a, a conversation for, it's more like stochastically how to think about something, you know, where you're in the zip code or the city block of something, not the, not the room itself. But, you know, it, it's, you know, like you're basically, like the reason, you know, insurance works is because the vast majority of the time for the people who provide insurance, you know, they don't have to do a payout, right? I mean, you know, so like you think about traffic fatalities in the United States, and and this is, I promise this is coming back to your um, question. So there's roughly, on average, over the last five to 10 years, there's been roughly about 38,000 traffic fatalities in the US per annum. That's out of 1.86 billion car trips per year, okay? Meaning somebody gets in a car, drives from point A to point B, gets out of the car. Now, what that looks like percentage-wise is something like 0.0002035%. (laughs) So it's, it's incredibly rare, but the people who die, they would want, hopefully, to have, have, you know, enough coverage to cover all the consequent outcomes of something like that, or if, or if it's, even if it's not a fatal accident, you would still want to have coverage for it. And while this is not an advertisement for insurance, it's probably going to sound like one, you know, there is a lot of power in being prepared for things that you don't expect that could actually happen, as opposed to not being prepared for something that you're literally just taking a chance to whether or not it does happen. You know, I mean, and, and like, look, preparing for tail risk is never going to be popular. (laughs) Yeah. So why should we, what, what is the value of having this conversation you think, and given the general inquiry of the podcast is about healing and in many senses, I mean, when I first read this, the definition of tail risk what we tend to look at is the tail risk on the side of failure, but tail risk is actually on either end of the statistical span. And you have tail risk at the top end as well for quote, unpredictable positive outcomes or at the other side of things versus failure, which sort of is, I don't know that we've pushed that hard into it, but I mean, I had, you know, Dr. Larry Farwell on and Mm -hmm. he shared about increasing the probability of 
producing miracles in our life and the actual mechanisms to be able to take improbable events and make them more probable through concentration, meditation, certain types of clearing practices. And, and that's actually now scientifically documented that we are capable of doing that, that we can push things in that direction. But why, why, why should the audience or what would be the interest point about discussing tail risk inside of a conversation about health and healing? Well, so here's a guess. So the first one is like, you know, I think, you know, when I've listened to episodes from your show, every time it always comes to a after the fact moment, right? Or an a posteriori type of outcome, like event happens, you know, trauma recovery, right? Yeah. I, I, and I'm, I'm not trying to minimize or, you know, flatten everybody's experience, every other guest that you've had on the show, but, but that does seem to be kind of like the arc of the story, right? For, for, the, mo- for the vast majority of your guests, right? So first question on, you know, dealing with potential negative outcomes is like, what if you could subvert the arc completely, like completely avoid it instead of it being after the fact, what if you took it on as a preventative preventative maintenance, right? You know, this is the cliche moment where we say an ounce of prevention is worth dot, 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 right? <laughs> and, and so there's that, that is one aspect of it, just, you know, simple, you know, playing defense on it, you know, but then there's the offense side, which is that you could actually look for these kind of asymmetric opportunities, you know, positive tail risk opportunities and, you know, have some kind of extraordinary outcome, you know, that does require a lot of preparation almost always. But once you've done the preparation, the moment that that event happens, yeah, it's like a 10x miracle or something or a 100x miracle, you know, I mean, just to give an example, right? So Hillary Clinton, back when she was a senator in 2007, she actually warned about the housing crisis a full I think 10 months before the housing market bubble crashed in the United States before it popped. And, uh, you know, anybody could have bought a credit default swap had they just been paying attention to her and known about credit default swaps. And some people did, right? You know, John Paulson is the most famous speculator on it. You know, he put in enough credit default swaps where his hedge fund, the day that the markets crashed, you know, the same time that Bear Stearns uh, went belly up, I think it was Bear Stearns. Yeah, his hedge fund made 19 billion in a day and he personally made 4 billion in a single day. He did okay. <laughs> yeah, just a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that's a thing that is possible, you know, just even in the, you know, even in the pandemic, a hedge fund manager last year, he, I'm try- can't remember the guy's name, but he took out like he bought like credit default swaps, I think two weeks before the market tanked, you know, when COVID made, you know, landfall publicly and the market started reacting to it. And he wound up making like his hedge fund made $2 billion in a single day or something. Over. Yeah. So, you know, there are ways to financially hedge in such a way that, yeah, you can do well taking advantage of those kinds of outcomes. So, so I want to pull this over and this is all... I mean, I was going to say theoretical, but it's probably not even to that level. This is like literally like we, we, you know, it's something I actually deal with my, my clients, my practice. Occasionally I have someone come to me, usually in their seventies seems to be, there's a, a moment 
when we turn 70 that people are like, oh, okay, what do I want for the rest of my life? What am I, what is this about? And I've had a few people who've hired me in their early seventies inside of a commitment Mm -hmm. to live to 120. And they go to their doctors and say, I'm committed to living to 120. What should I do? And predominantly medical doctors scratch their heads over that one because it is so far outside of their paradigm and field of training of death prevention, the idea of long, you know, and there are doctors that specialize in longevity. Although I would argue that a lot of that has just been focused on hormone replacement therapy and some kind of like, but some of the things in there, like, are there actual things that we can do therapeutically to reduce the speed at which our telomeres are shortened, which is the little end on our DNA that basically is the ticker timer that says when it, your telomere goes all the way down, it you're, you're done, that cell's going to die. And we yeah. have telomere length in our cells that's actually predictive of like, how well are you doing on this? And there are some people in the longevity industry that have been work on trying to figure out ways to be able to calculate your biologic age. And most yeah. people come in at an age older than what they are, but, you know, in theory, it would be, what would it actually look like to be coming in, you know, a 72 year old man, but your biologic age is 55, right? What would that do? So Tony, kind of like Anthony Fauci, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. He's, he turned 80 this year and he can still run the Boston marathon in under four hours. Right. (laughs) And there are, you know, and and there's a real lack of research of people like him, of yeah. what is that? What did that actually take? What were the things that would have been, like you said, it it could, it really could be looking for those positive tail risk opportunities, 10X or 100X type miracle outcomes. Yeah. And the, the key that I think is in there is this lots of preparation. And in our current culture, that preparation to the outside world might literally look like you're nuts because you're not oh. going to fit into the status quo. There's no way, because otherwise it wouldn't, that wouldn't be tail risk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the one of the the central. So it, it's a good thing you're you're saying this. So and don't let me forget your direct question. But let's just be really clear: preparing for tail risk is unpopular by def- definition. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and, and and I think though, like you have a really lovely way of saying it, like unpopular. But like what that would literally look like is like being willing to take actions in the face of all your friends and all your family members, literally being like, "Why the hell are you doing that?" Like. You're such a fanatic. Oh my gosh, you're such a radical. Like that's so, I mean, there are people who were at work on the conversation of reducing EMFs as a health tactic. And and to be honest, I'm in the camp of like, sure, EMFs may be impacting Lyme's disease and they might actually have an actual correlative issue on our body, but good luck trying to escape them in the modern world. Like you're just not, but there are people that are doing things to make that a reality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to, to answer your question a little more directly, the, the short answer is I could just punt and say, I don't know, you know, that would be the easy one. And we could just move on and let Kendra edit this part of the conversation out or, or something like that. But I'm going to just take a cut here and say that I'm willing to speculate that almost everybody has some gap of what they could do to, you know, actually achieve real fitness 
or even wellness compared to wherever they are now. Because like CrossFit, in the CrossFit conversation, they have this continuum, this health continuum called sickness, wellness, fitness, right? You know, most people are somewhere between sickness and wellness, but before they roll into CrossFit. And then through some combination of living death during the workouts, and then, you know, like going full on paleo, you know, outside of the box, they get to wellness and then they have an opportunity to get, go to fit, you know, to get to fitness. Right. And, and it's like, you don't become sick, you know, starting from fitness, you, you go back to wellness and then you get to sickness. Right. And, and what I'm speculating, what I'm guessing here is that there's a lot more that we could do on multiple axes or multiple dimensions of, of that continuum to get to fitness, right? Yeah. You know, to to drive towards fitness, and you know that would be like okay, you know, one popular example that I think everybody has a vested interest in at a certain level is you know finding a romantic partner, right? And you know, eventually having a live-in relationship, right? Those tend to cause lifespan to extend dramatically because you know you're accountable for somebody they're accountable for you you play house literally (laughs) and and and, you know and you and you two keep each other going by just the sheer presence of being there right so that's that's one particle of it another would be to just i would say stay out of high like high popular information domain spaces and that is code for the news, the popular news, you know, I mean, so one thing that I discovered about myself in the last 12 months was that I almost always stress ate every time I would read political news, you know, mm. especially during I just didn't discover this until the last election cycle. Like, I mean, I would just, you know, read something on political wire or Vox or whatever. And then I would walk over to the kitchen and you know, pop something into my mouth, you know? And so like I could, you know, maybe do lots of therapy to short circuit that, or I could, I don't know, stop reading political wire and Vox. What? Never. (laughs) Not that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually, I mean, that's something that I've, it's come up with many of my clients in the last, I have clients that they've stayed at home. They have eaten way more home cooked meals And so in the world of like their stress levels shouldn't necessarily be going up when we look at it through a certain lens. Now we can see the decrease in activity level and the decrease in social, which is part of it. And I've watched their cholesterol levels just tick up and up and up and up disproportionate to the lifestyle impact. They're still walking. They're still, I swear to God, it's the reaction of inflammation in our body from the stress of the news, the political climate, and the the just however we've interpreted fear around the pandemic. And I've seen it in multiple people. So like, yes, that's actually could be a significant impact. Yeah. I mean, for sure. I I personally think, again, you're the doctor, not me. (laughs) You know, I I personally think that, you know, when people get obsessional about trying to know all the facts, right? Like, you know, we talked about September 11th at the top end, you know, yesterday was the final day of the Afghan, US-Afghan war, you know, the last airlift left sometime in the last 36 hours. And, you know, I guess, you know, the only thing I can really say here is, you know, 
if you look at your information consumption from the point of view of personal efficacy, and this is where I'm going to invoke the um, serenity prayer from Alcoholics Anonymous here, you know, God, give me the, let's see, how's it go? God, give me the strength to, <laughs> to change the things I can things that I and can, to accept the things I cannot. Things I can, and the wisdom to, to know the difference. Know yeah, the difference. this is horribly mangled. I bad alcohol, bad, but <laughs> you know, the uh, but the thing is, like, if you look at it from an efficacy, personal efficacy point of view, or professional efficacy point of view, how many people in in the audience, you the listener, can actually do anything about you know the state of all these. Um, you know, U.S. friendly Afghans who, for whatever reason, you know, just they either got shut out of the airport or they, you know, didn't may have the right political connections back here or you don't have the right political connections. Like, how much can you actually do about the thing, right, that you are, you know, like nine kinds of mad about? The answer is not much not unless you're willing to rewire your entire life to do something about that, you know, because, you know, for people who haven't seen um, the musical Alexander Hamilton, there's a whole song in there about the whole song is called the room where it happens. And it specifically is about the negotiation of what it took to get Washington DC actually created the district of Columbia. And, um, you know, I encourage everybody to go look up the lyrics because it really does talk about what efficacy really looks like. If you're not in the actual room where the decision is made, you're just angry for no reason, honestly, 99 times out of 100. I would actually probably even say 101 times out of 100. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, and, and if you think about it, you know, the ginned up upset is really just like it, it just keeps us paralyzed, you know, and paralysis is, you know, just another form of learned helplessness, right? And, and so, you know, I'm not saying don't care. I'm just saying, just think about how much news you consume and how much you get upset about it and how much you can actually do about it. And the answer is almost always, you know, you know, somewhere between zero and 1% for what you can do about it versus what you consume. Well, and I think that the anger, I'm going to speak for myself, but some other yeah. people may get the anger is easier to be with than the despair or the just flat out gut reality check that I am horrified that X, Y, and Z is happening and I'm not going yeah. to do anything about it. And to be willing to stand in my own authenticity to be straight that like, like human trafficking and that we sex traffic children in the world and that there really is still slavery in so many countries where people are just taken off the streets and made to work in conditions and then put into indentured yeah. servitude at best. That's all still happening. Yeah, that's a thing. And I'm really straight that I'm not going to do anything directly about it. Yeah. And, and where will I let that live or not live inside of me? And, you know, last night I had an experience of like most of this. So I had never been a daily news reader. Mm -hmm. And if anything, I was a little bit of an ostrich in the sand, but actually a lot of it was like, I'm really clear. I'm not going to, I'm a doctor. And at that time I was a coach for landmark. And I was really clear that I knew where my impact domain was. 
It was with my clients. It was Mm -hmm. with the people I was coaching. End of story. That's where I put my time and attention. And I didn't read the news ever. My dad would be like, how's the flooding in Phoenix when I lived there? And I'm like, what flooding? And he's like, the flooding, like the the highways are all closed. And I was like, oh, I didn't know. I mean, it's raining a lot outside my house. But if it wasn't like happening right where I was physically standing, I probably didn't know what was going on. Right. That changed for me when the pandemic started and I chose it. And I intentionally subscribed to a couple of different news agencies. And I actually have now, interestingly enough, I have this like unconscious habit to wake myself up in the morning reading the New York Times, which maybe I could do better about when I consume the news, but I would check in on things every day. And I had a very vested interest in knowing what was Mm -hmm. happening throughout the pandemic inside of being a doctor. Well, this habit continued and... I actually recognized that there was a pattern of the mornings that I would do that. And my state of consciousness and mood for the first two to three hours of my day was getting vastly skewed by it. And I just stopped this summer. Yeah. Decided to take a break from it until last night. And a very awesome bulletin, which actually we can post we'll post in the show notes here, and I'll also reference it on my website so people have access. There's a physician that I follow, Dr. Paul Herskew, who's a naturopathic mm-hmm. physician and homeopath, who's been an expert in epidemics and pandemics and been studying epidemics and pandemics for over 20 years. And he's written a lot about them. And because he's very familiar with the subject matter, he's been able to write up some pretty solid predictions of like, This is what we need to do to end it. This is what we probably are likely going to do. And these are going to be the outcomes. And you can reference back to things he said a year ago that are now happening, which he said, I hoped they didn't happen, but I was pretty sure they were going to because of how we were handling the pandemic. And he hasn't written an update in a while. And he wrote a bunch of them. And he's got these five updates for vaccinated people, unvaccinated people, the state of the pandemic, what's happening now. And I read them for 45 minutes last night and it was like a cloud of doom came over me (laughs) and I'm glad I did it and I needed to, but I'm like, wow. And that facing the despair, which is somewhat my own tendency. That's a thing that my brain will go to is the ocean of sadness. It's been there my whole life if I'm not tending to it, but you know, when I look and bring this back to what the conversation where we were coming from with this around tail risk and the preparation for tail risk on either end of the spectrum, but let's now look at that positive side of it. Like there's that piece of what are the actions we actually can take that would be significant in really opening up the quality of our life and they're not going to be popular, and they're not going to be standard every day. And another one that comes to mind for me is the research I've seen. And I have a dear friend who's actually literally done vast amounts of research in this around fungicides, pesticides, and herbicides, Tristan Brandhorst, which we should have on the show. I should ask him to come on. He is so scientific about it, though. We'll have to dumb it down a little bit for human consumption. But His stand point blank is the extent to which herbicides, fungicides, and pesticides are destroying the inside of our body. I mean, they're designed to kill life. And we have this concept that there is a reasonable amount of life killing chemicals that we can have inside our human bodies. And it's mostly measured against no significant documented direct illness can be correlated to them, which isn't even true because the research gets suppressed all the time and it doesn't kill a person. 
then it's okay for it to be on the market and getting them off the market when it's been proven specific outcomes from those chemicals is incredibly difficult to do. And there's hundreds of them, although there's a few key popular ones. And his stand is you want to mitigate some tail risk and actually create an opening for action. Do not under any circumstances ever eat food that's not organic. That's hard to do. To truly live by that would take a lot of commitment. Yeah. And some, and some coin. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, so there's this idea again, Nicholas Nassim Taleb popularized it. He didn't originate it though. And the notion is anti-fragility. He actually has a book called Anti-Fragile, if I'm not mistaken. And I like to think about it a lot like how firemen properly train. So if your audience, if there's no firemen in your audience, I'm going to just kind of walk through a little story from a friend of mine who uh, was in the FDNY, you know, and he told me about this. So you think of a fire alarm or fire drill, and it's like a lot of chaos causing, right? Panic, you know, chaos, et cetera, right? That's not how professional fire, fire people think about it, professional firefighters. They're trained, this was at the time 10 years ago when I heard, heard this story. So what the FDNY does is that they, um, their firefighters are one day on, two days off, you know, under normal circumstances, again, not September 11th. And what happens is that, you know, during the day that they're on, they fully train the two days off, they're completely off and they drill on every possible known scenario that has ever come up in the history of firefighting, you know? And so when they roll up to a fire, when there's an actual fire alarm and the, if the truck goes out, their occurring world or their perception model of what's going on is like, okay, this follows this particular combination of things that I've already drilled on. Let's do this. Right. And so they've completely retrained their limbic system and their, is it their parasympathetic one? The one that causes flight? Sympathetic. Is it sympathetic? Okay. Sorry. Yeah. They've, they've completely retrained their nervous system and their sympathetic, uh, the sympathetic part of their nervous system to actually embrace rather than uh, react to fire emergencies, you know, yep. that is not a popular way to do stuff. <laughs> no, no. And I mean, I was married to a wildland firefighter and I know quite a bit about the training that they go under all the time and the extent to which, and I mean, what this makes me also think of is in the airline industry, there's similar, the, the extent to which John would come home and his training almost always was wrapped around this one incident where a fire burned over a fire crew and they would study it and study it and study it and pick it apart and work out all the scenarios and all the details and the extent to which that we have millions of firefighters on the front lines and it's incredibly rare to have a firefighter die. In wildland firefighter, I know more about wildland than I do about structure fire, but you know, the millions of men and women that are actually fighting wildland fires and, and the very small amount that like they've managed to get that down to have fatalities in those circumstances is all due to that kind of training, that kind of preparation. And the same thing happens in the airline industry and the way, you know, and a book I recently was reading for a business course is black box thinking It came out in 2015, but still so much of it is very relevant today about our human nature and how we recoil from failure and we try and spin failures to even pretend they're not failures at all. 
so that we don't actually have to dig in and look, but then we don't learn from them either. And there's a quote yeah. in the book that talks about, we have a tendency to think that practice makes perfect. We have that even that we say that, but actually yeah. when you track performance and this can go to professional athletes, this can go into any career. When you track performance, lots yeah. of people practice still equals failure. <laughs> If they don't do the looking and they're not willing to actually dig into it to then dig out what was the actual source of the failure and to first admit that there even was a failure and to actually then be able to do that study and that work for the corrective actions for it. Right. Otherwise, practice just makes practice and repeating the same outcomes over and over again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you just kind of want to, I mean, something that I've been doing a lot lately is, is, playing what I call the insanity card, right? And, you know, for those of you who do not know what the insanity card is, um, it's basically an apocryphal statement that Albert Einstein made about how insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result, right? And so, you know, the simplest version of it is if you are unhappy in a particular area of your life about something, what, consider that you are actually insane there. (laughs) <laughs> you know, like, like genuinely insane, and then pull the brake, stop, like, you know, throw, you know, throw a flag on the play and figure out what happened, like mm-hmm. figure out what really happened, like step all the way back from it and, and start picking it apart forensically as opposed to emotionally, you know, so that's, that's another approach that I could offer, you know, to the audience. Yeah. And And uh, I'm going to put in a plug for my experiences. I'm pretty horrendous at doing that forensic investigation by myself. Yeah. I mean, even being trained in it, even knowing, I mean, I have a lot of training in separating my story about something from what actually happened and being able to get connected to reality and what, what can I actually count on as measurable versus my interpretation And even still in those areas where I am upset or it's not the way I want it, I am notoriously terrible at doing it on my own. And that's why I've always had coaches. I have a life coach, I have a business coach, I have a naturopathic physician, and then I have a very empowered relationship with my sister. This could be a friend where my sister and I talk four times a week. It used to be every single day and we've kind of gotten efficient about it where the intention of our communication really is to help sort ourselves out and root out those things that is only going to happen in dialogue, talking to another person. There's just right. no way I'm going to do it from the inside of my own head. My, I just know too much about neuroscience that my brain is too hardwired to ensure my survivability of something to doesn't want to see those things. It just doesn't want to bump up against those oh shit, bad news. Oh my God, I really was the one at the source of this, or here's the actions I could have taken differently, especially in the circumstances where we're sure that the outside world shat on us or we're a victim to something. Sure. I mean, you can be right about being a victim about it, but that's not going to be able to have you get sourceful about producing any new results at all until you flip it around. And I have always needed you have been a person for me in that over this last year and a half, and particularly with chronic fatigue syndrome. I mean, there have been some big conversations you've had with me that made a huge difference in, like, I don't know exactly. I remember where I was and I was on a street corner next to a small dog park in Salt Lake City within a mile distance of my house 
Walking Henry. And I don't know, I was about six months in to five to six months in and you flat out said, at the risk of offending you as my friend, I'm going to say this, which is Sarah, you're not well. And you're not dealing with that. And I had all my power, positive thinking of, I don't want to create that reality for myself. And like, yeah, but, 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 but there was, I was not doing the forensic analysis of reality. And I was still trying to hide myself from an experience of, or perception of failure that I couldn't get to that spot without another person supporting me and looking in and being willing to say something like that. And it was critical to me unraveling what I needed to unravel to heal, to then be well again, to move forward was to face that in that moment. Yeah. You know, we just, we take this stuff so personally, right? Like we, we have this failure, like, let's just take, let's just take, you know, kind of the big ones, right? A relationship ends, we lose a job opportunity, you know, a dream, bankruptcy, bankruptcy, a dream has not worked out our, you know, we're completely off track on our retirement planning, you know, the list just kind of keeps going, right? And we, we take this stuff so personally, right? Like, why can't I be in a relationship? I like, you know, I'm, I'm a nice person. I'm good, blah, blah, blah. You know, but, but the thing is, if you're not dealing with, you know, your, the fundamental unworkability in a particular domain, you're never going to get to the other side, you know, and, and just consider that wherever you've got fundamental unworkability that you're not dealing with head on, you're never going to get to the other side of it. Right. And, and that's something that, you know, people just don't want to hear. I mean, you know, the, when I did the Ted talk a thousand years ago, God, um, (laughs) (laughs) you did that Ted talk the same year I published the cookbook. That's interesting. And so I I I have a similar, I just realized that I have a similar, like, ah, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that all kind of came out as a function of, of, yeah, a tail risk event. Right. I mean, well, several of them, I mean, the, the talk was specifically about, you know, this amazing job that I had that I lost, that I left, you know, just because it had, it gotten to be untenable to stay there. And, and also the end of a relationship that I really thought was going to go, you know, in the direction of family and that didn't need one of those happen. And, uh, you know, the, the punchline, if, if everybody wants to skip the 18 minutes, it's that, you know, radically different conversations create a new future. And, you know, the idea is that you've got to be willing to go in a completely different direction to get to the other side of something. And, and you know, tail risk, you know, you're, you're just not going to get a crowd of people to study tail risk together. That's just not how it works. Like. <laughs> you know it's it's you know to be properly prepared for it it's a very it's a like it's it requires a lot of inward focus and yeah you know I mean the National Transportation Safety Board they are almost single-handedly responsible here in the United States for causing flight accidents and and flight fatalities to be 
almost non-existent now. I mean, it's it's way safer to fly in the United States, even with COVID, than any other transport activity, yep. hands down, not even close. Yeah. You know, and uh, and yeah, you know, are you willing to pick apart something at the level of an NTSB crash site investigation? Huh. So, yeah, one of the conversations we had before this podcast started was we were talking about Corey Three Wings episode on dreams and creating your life out of joy. And you were sharing how you weren't sure that you could share to live up to. And I'm like, I'm having a Corey Three Wing experience right now in this podcast. So it's at least for me getting delivered, which is just that thing of, a radically different conversation will create a new future. And I actually this morning texted my sister. I've been in a a, mo- a mood. It's an emotional loop. It's not really that grounded in reality about my finances. And it's very oh. interesting to notice that I more or less, quote, handled the chronic fatigue syndrome about two months ago. I had a massive shift. And this is one of those where like, we always think these things are going to be linear. And I was at the bottom of a new (laughs) barrel on in July. And then it was like popped out the other side in August. And I still have some time to go to pay attention to this, but really the brain fog is gone. My brain functionality is up. I am totally functioning in the world 12 hours a day. And I require eight hours of sleep a night, not nine and a half, which in the world of scheduling your day, there's a huge difference between eight hours of sleep and nine and a half hours. And like, that's great. I haven't crashed after events that I used to crash from. And so some, something fundamentally shifted. Yeah. As soon as it did, my brain went after a new problem. It was like, oh, we're not gonna worry about your well-being anymore. Great. Let's talk about your retirement. And I'm like, what the fuck, honestly? Like, brain, <laughs> really? Like, could I just a break? Could I have like a month? Maybe t- nope. It was instantaneous. It was like as my well-being was improving and this other thing was resolving, bam, immediately. And I was just texting my sister and I literally wrote her, I have got to start having a different conversation about this. Yeah. And then here we are. And I'm like, ha. Huh. and and it is like I mean you said it you know for me it's this where retirement planning now what the 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 deal is is I'm spinning in story I have a story about my financial future that is I'm not hired a financial advisor I'm not talking to an expert about this I have not surrendered over all my data to have it analyzed by someone like me but in the finance world you know, who can actually diagnose the problem in the patient and give me the prescription of here's your well-being plan to recreate it. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to just halt this conversation for a moment. I'm going to, this is a PSA announcement uh, for you and everybody else. So it would be very easy to make you, you, Sarah Marshall, and you, the listener wrong for ineffective financial planning. Okay, you can do that. But here's the reality. Unless you, under most circumstances, and, and we're excluding anybody who, could in, who, who has the opportunity to inherit a large, a large fortune, okay, we're not talking about those people. If you are like solidly middle class or upper middle class, and you did not know to start putting your money away into retirement planning by the age of 25, which, let me just ask now, did anybody tell you to start putting your money away at the age of 25 for retirement planning? 
So this is interesting. 25, no. 30, yes. Okay, yeah, by 25. Yeah, no, not 25. (laughs) All right. 25, I was still spending as much into, you know, that was the year I started medical school. And that was when grandma's inheritance and the final of that, which wasn't a huge sum, but went into supporting med school. And I was having conversations about going into more debt than I ever could imagine in my life, not the other direction. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing, right? Like nobody, there, there isn't like some billboard sitting out there in every large city or in every small city saying, Hey, listen up. If you don't start doing retirement planning by the age of 25, you are going to have a lot of emotional misery about it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So you did not start thinking about it until the age of 30 and you have a lot of emotional misery about it. Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) (laughs) You, my friend, are right on schedule. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and we just take this so personally. Oh my God. And, and, you know, it's, you know, we're, we're in this fishbowl called the world. Some people would call it the matrix. I know the Warkowski sisters call it the matrix. Um, you know, and we're constantly fed a diet of blue pills, okay? And unless somebody, you know, physically grabs your hand, puts a red pill in your hand and forces you to swallow a red pill, you are not going to take a red pill until you're good and ready to, right? Because, you know, the number one of, you know, the number one thing that's going to take you out in life is your obsessive compulsive need to be right and to be in control, you know, and, and that's the thing. I'm just fine. I know everything, you know, and, you know, I'm, I'm telling you this as a recovering smartest guy in the room um, person, Jesus, wasted <laughs> decades, decades on that one. And yeah, you know, there's, there's literally forgive yourself, Yeah. you know, I mean, and, and just create, you know, you're looking for tail risk positive outcome you know create the start intending and creating yeah start intending and creating it now you know to go in the other direction you know and and you know be a real student about it okay yeah with help that's and i can see where that you know you and i are notorious for three-hour conversations which we're not going to do here in the podcast so we're going to kind of put a this pin where, in this is this. where this, this is where Kendra says thank god yeah this is the part where like we're not tying it up with a bow there is no tying up tail risk with a bow that doesn't that just doesn't happen but um it's impossible to tie it with a bow uh-uh. thing. Yeah. yeah I can get the extent to which I do my best with my clients inside of altering their view and what occurs to them as the natural actions to be taking for their health and well-being is a lot of handing them red pills and working on that, breaking out of that thinking to literally be going in the other direction and become students of health and become students of physiology such that the majority of my clients actually do disappear at least the suffering and the experience of the disease that they're dealing with. If not, we can't find laboratory evidence of it. Of, you know, once the work has been put in and right. that is a very uncommon statistically reality in the grand scheme of where our medical field is at, that, you know, you can go to a doctor and end up healthier at the end of a year or two or three of commitment 
into it and naturopathic physicians and alternative medical practitioners and functional medicine doctors generally are pretty popularly good at that. And, you know, some more effective than others. And that's something you should ask about the track records of the physicians you work with. And I mean, we've talked about this in other episodes of the lack of opportunity, but man, wouldn't it be incredible if you could actually interview your doctors and ask about their stats <laughs> and say like, you know, what is that? And that's, if you do want to get into that whole world, read the book, Black Box Thinking. It's slightly terrifying how little we are willing to analyze our failures and do that kind of forensic, literally forensic investigation of healthcare outcomes. And that's a lot of why you are way safer getting on an airplane than you are walking into an emergency room, generally yeah, speaking, from a statistical Right. Outcome. I mean, yeah, like it's, it's really crazy making, right? On multiple vectors because so you have the medical industrial complex right and they you know they have a different service cost model than flight you know airline travel does airplane travel does so let's let's just be clear it's it's not exactly apples to apples in terms of comparison yeah And, and i know that that is you know that's something the book gets criticized for but but they're really trying to draw a point about an industry that learns from its mistakes versus an industry, industry that, that is unwilling it. to yeah, yeah. An, an industry that's unwilling to right because you know like like what was i reading in the prep for this interview that um something like what is it 70 percent of all infections are preventable if hospital staff use would just follow proper you know hand sanitation protocols or something yeah. like that and it's either it's either 40 or 70 yeah. percent okay I mean, and i and know again, of two people in my personal life that have both died from hospital acquired antibiotic resistant infections right yeah. yeah so so that's that's a thing you know hand sanitization has existed i think for at least 100 to 140 years i mean mm-hmm. like sometime yeah. after coming out of the civil war right Yep. you know, here in the, here in the U S. So like, yeah, you know, this is, this is the thing about, you know, the God complex, you know, whereas, you know, with, with airplane travel early on, when it used to just be military, the military had an extraordinarily vested interest in preventing crashes. Right. And so they, it just really kind of became a conversational position, right? Like, oh, there's a crash. We have to like go all the way into the ninth circle of forensic hell about it and then come back out. And I think if my memory serves me and I might have the detail of this off, but it was something like World War One. maybe sounds better than it was World War II, but one of the two, the stats was 50% of fighter pilots survived and 50% died. Like if you went, if you left the base to go in an airplane as a fighter pilot into war, 50, only 50% were coming home. That's where that stat started. And it's dramatically altered. Now that's a little tricky because we've also altered how we go to war. There's a lot of things that have happened, but, but that there was, it was like, you know, incredibly high likelihood of our military fighter pilots, you know, one and two was going to die. And so from a cost standpoint of the training and the development and the airplane and all of that, that happened, you know, that's, that was a massive vested interest. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, yeah, you know, to like, to really like study how 
people operating at the extreme edges of this stuff, you know, medical researchers, flight surgeons, you know, people who, you know, participate in extreme sports under extreme conditions, you know, those would be, you know, entities to possibly at least study, if not emulate at some level for your own personal uh, well-being, you know, in terms of the whole extending one's lifespan to 120. I mean, you know, there's this one, I don't remember the book, there's this, there's this one phenomenon that happens called Ikigai, which is purpose, you know, effectively, it's, I think it's uh, Japanese for purpose or something like that. And, and the idea is that, you know, if you're in your purpose, there's no such thing as retirement, you just keep going until you can't, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of people really tolerate having jobs that, you know, or careers that are just really like functionally pointless in terms of their own intrinsic, yeah, fulfillment, like, like, do I make a difference? I mean, you know, the answer is no, but I'm collecting, you know, a decent salary, and I have a nice house and, and things are relatively good. And yeah, but but you know, how am I forwarding the game of this part of humanity that I care about, you know, or that I say I care about? Well, you know, you may not be right. (laughs) And, and that could actually be a lifespan short, a dramatic lifespan shortener, you know, like if, if you having, you know, the, a purpose, the purpose equivalent of a dead end job and, you know, like you make it to 65 and then you die at 67. And that's actually in the research on longevity when they've studied centennials and, you know, more or less what we've discovered is that it's around 30% of what determines longevity of life is genetic. The other 70% is cultural. And the cultural aspects have to do with two key factors. One is autonomy. Does the person actually experience self-empowerment and self-value? And there was a phrase that Dr. Mario Martinez used in his information about this, who he had gone in and done a lot of study of longevity, which was healthy narcissism that people like they're, they're clear. They're at the top of what's important, their lives, their needs, their wants, but from a healthy standpoint, you know, but that's the way he coined it. And then the other component is culturally, are they valued? Yeah. And so that same sense of like my relationship to my own career and, or job that I do and what that does or doesn't provide for me in terms of self-satisfaction and purpose is a huge influencer on longevity of life. Like yeah. massively. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, like, you know, I mean, to me, and I know we try to resist the bow tying thing, but if, if I had to make a speculative guess of what a bow tie could sound like, you know, good purpose and good practice, you yeah. know, and, and to really be willing to go somewhere that, you feel drawn to not because uh, what's the idea here you know not because it would look good to your parents or look good to your um, you know your friends or or thing but because it's intrinsically important to you because you know one thing that I, I often talk to people about and you've heard me say this in our private conversations is like okay how good is this idea under combat duress mm. right <laughs> you know, and, and it really is as brutal as it sounds. Like if this thing actually works under combat duress, can I remember it? Can I regenerate it? Can I follow it? Can I cause it? Can I get to the other side of it under combat conditions? It's probably really good. And if it fails the combat duress test, 
you know, yeah. ignore it. Just yeah. like, okay, not good enough. Yeah. You know, and, and that's something that we're just not willing to be that brutal because we're so tranquilized by our routine that, you know, things are going well, you know, sure. I may be up for a promotion or sure. I may be up for a raise and I'll either get the promotion or I'll get the raise. And then we're on to a new routine. You know, but are we really looking at things like fundamentally disassembling stuff, you know, and, and seeing how we can do it? I mean, I think also in black box thinking, if I'm not mistaken, there's a story about the UK cycling team. And okay, so we're going to ignore the drug controversy that followed them later after the book was published. Okay, we're just going to bracket and ignore that. But, you know, one of the things that those guys did that I thought was really genius was that they um, would do this marginal gains thing over and over again, where they would constantly try to keep pushing the envelope, even if it's just 1% to 3% in a particular domain, you know, getting better hotel rooms, sleeping on better mattresses, you know, having their, you know, having like maximal integrity everywhere in their clothing their diet, their bike gear, their transport, whatever, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. are we willing to live? Are we willing to live from a position of maximal integrity? You yeah. know, and, and are we do we even know what maximal integrity looks like in a particular conversational domain? I'll, yeah. I'll just leave the audience to ponder the that. that then question. he unties I, the bow and we're gonna leave it there. <laughs> yeah. <Dink. laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, this was definitely fulfilled everything I wanted out of this conversation. So thank you, Sam Krishna, so much for being willing to wade in the dark and murky waters of a very unpopular subject that's absolutely a conversation worth having and exploring and the inquiry of it. And thank you listeners for hanging in there. And we're just going to let this one knock around in your head and see what it breaks loose. Yeah, you're welcome. One of my favorite topics. So Awesome. All right. Until we get to do it again. All right. Thank you. Thank you to today's guest, Sam Krishna, for his brilliance and dedication. For all the resources for today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com backslash podcast. Special thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickpour, and our editor, Kendra Vicken. And as always, thank you for being here. We'll see you next time.